The following lecture was delivered at the 12th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Palm Desert, California, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Simon Jacobson will now present his lecture, Bridging Faith and Modernity. In many ways, uh, this perhaps is the greatest challenge that each one of us faces in our personal lives, in our professional lives, in our communal lives, social lives. It's exactly that, bridging faith and modernity. Because you see, 500 years ago, 400 years ago, our parents and grandparents didn't have this issue. For good or for bad, they didn't even have a choice because they were not allowed to uh, enter and engage with the modern world. So wherever you are, anyone sitting in this room, you go back a few generations, you know, at least 300 years, whether Sephardic countries or Ashkenazi countries, Eastern Europe, Central Europe, uh, the Middle Eastern countries, wherever we were as a Jewish people, we were essentially segregated, to put it mildly, from the secular world, meaning from the Western world or from the host countries where we lived. Segregated was the mild form of it, and the extreme form of it was expelled, killed, overtaxed. I mean, everyone knows our history. So there was no battle between faith and modernity. All you had was faith, and indeed, Jewish communities built strong strongholds. It's called the shtetl, the city, the town, whatever it may be, where they were uh, very committed to Judaism, the study of Torah, doing mitzvahs, and that was all there was. They couldn't enter the universities. They couldn't even take on any of the trades and so many other of the benefits, so to speak, of the rest of their host cities and countries. So it's really a modern phenomenon for us, it's a, com it's a common phenomenon, but it's a modern phenomenon that began with essentially what we call the emancipation of the Jews. When the Jewish people, when the waves of democracy began to sweep through, the winds of democracy began to sweep through Europe, so it opened up new opportunities. Suddenly Jews, well not suddenly, over time, Jews were allowed of their ghettos and they began to be allowed into the universities and to integrate and mix with the Western culture. I say Western, I mean primarily this happened first in Europe. And of course, here's the paradox of all paradox and the irony of all ironies. With the freedoms that we were given, that we benefited from, came the birth of assimilation. As I said, it wasn't even a possibility, an option. If you had a Jew that, so to speak, left their, the Jewish fold, it would have been an extreme situation of an apostate, someone that baptized and converted themselves, and that was very rare talking about prior to the emancipation. But once the emancipation of the Jews became, essentially the doors were opened and we could suddenly mingle and we could suddenly mix. And this was a real dilemma, frankly, because what do you do? The Jews weren't even accustomed to it. I'm giving us just a short history because I think it's vital to understand where we are today is to understand where we came from. And it helps us then understand the shape, what shaped modern society is this period in time around 300 years ago with emancipation. 
So indeed, what happened? In the Jewish circles arose two movements at that period in time. And the two movements were, number one was in Central Europe, primarily in Germany, the birth of what is called today the Reform Movement. And this by no means is a, uh, a setup to critique. I'm not here to discuss now the denominations, just the historical facts. What was the Reform Movement? As the name implies, reform, to reform Judaism. Why? Because we need to adjust to the new realities and the new opportunities. And how do you do that? Till now, all we had was one choice. It was the Jewish choice. There was nothing else. There was no other option available. You weren't allowed in even if you wanted to. And here suddenly there's options. So one of the expressions that became popular then was a Jew at home and a guy in the street. The best of both worlds. The best of both worlds. Again, this didn't happen overnight. Everything evolved. But, but when you look in retrospect, you see what emerged. And people like Moses Mendelssohn and his colleagues, and definitely his students, all initially began as Torah-observant Jews. Because I said that was the status quo. There was no other option. <clears throat> but now, with these new opportunities, they felt, let's integrate them. Now, as we know, it's not so simple. Because what happens if the street, if your neighbor, your uh, Protestant neighbor invites you to dinner and it's not a kosher dinner? Do you behave like the Jew at home or do you believe, behave like the guy in the street? So it's not a simple matter. It's a nice cliche, but how does it work? And that, with that began the reform movement, which slowly, not so slowly, a generation or two later, literally dropped most of mitzvahs, to be honest. With the argument being, now we have a new opportunities. We'll hold on to the spirit of Judaism, whatever that means. The morality of Judaism. But all these laws, as uh, Abraham Geiger, one of the great students of Moses Mendelssohn. And I say great, I meant as a student, he was great of Moses Mendelssohn. And what does he, he claimed? We have to cut out all the laws that are primitive, don't fit the modern times. This includes laws of purity and impurity. Obviously all the laws of the temple. Um, and obviously all the laws that do not associate with rational thinking. And it's just been spiraled, so to speak, out of control in a way. Just to drive the point home, and I'm not trying to be humorous here, but this is a true story that when the reform movement came to the United States, there was a thing called the Pittsburgh Platform. And the reform, American reform movement came out with 10 new commandments. I don't mean to replace those, but 10 so-called edicts, 10 principles that they held true. And one of them was to move Shabbos from Saturday to Sunday. Could you not? This was not even, this was not embraced because even the most liberal uh, factions of reform in Europe, that was already, but that's the case, then there's what makes us Jewish. Then there's completely Christianity. But they wanted to do that for the same reason. Why stand out? Why stand out? Sunday is a nice day. The rest of the Western world is honoring that as their Sabbath. So why not just move it to Sunday? It makes it much more convenient. If you go the rational thinking, like let's say you know, you're in a business type of thinking, why not? But just because to show you that it's not that simple bridging faith and modernity. That's my point here. But in counterbalance to this extreme, something else was born in the eastern part of uh, Europe. Eastern Europe, and that is what some would call today the ultra-Orthodox movement. The ultra-Orthodox movement, which was essentially, okay, 
the ghetto walls are coming down. The laws, are, the, the laws that are separating us from the secular Western world or the Christian Western world are becoming more lenient. We can mix. Therefore, we need to impose upon ourselves our own self-imposed ghetto walls. Because if not, it's a threat to us. And essentially, the Western world and all its benefits, its art, its culture, its literature, its philosophy, its universities, the businesses, will be the downfall of Judaism. And we have to consider it as an enemy of ours. And therefore, we have to impose upon ourselves our own walls, like blinders. Like we put blinders on a horse, not to get distracted. This seemed to be, like, this, was, this was the other extreme. So instead of the best of both worlds, we'll put up these walls. Now, just by show of hands, what do you think we should be doing? Which one of the two? Nobody choosing even one of them, right? Right, because there's a third option, which we're going to discuss here. Because interestingly, and fascinatingly actually, these two extremes really are rooted from the sa in, the, in the same uh, problem. You know what it is? That God or faith, and the modern world can't coexist. So one group opts for the extreme of choosing modern, the modernity, and the other group chooses faith, and they both feel they cannot coexist. Can you imagine that the most liberal left-wing reform thinking is very similar to the most right-wing orthodox thinking? It means the two cannot coexist. Philosophically, based on the same philosophy, just which one you choose. So interestingly, as we have an expression in the Talmud, it says that before the illness, the cure precedes the illness. At that same time, approximately when Moses Mendelssohn's end of his life, there was a man born in white Russia. His name was the Baal Shem Tov. But this would become the birth of this Hasidic movement. And as I shall try to present, this offered a third option. A third option that does not require the compromise of the, of, those, of the two. That you can indeed integrate them, but not in a way that compromises Judaism and faith, and not in a way that compromises the modern world and all its freedoms and benefits. And obviously it's the most complicated approach, but it's the one that I have no doubt in my mind is the, the right and the Torah approach. So these new challenges were challenges of the modern world, and they continue to affect us, as I will elaborate in a moment. But there is a third option. And that's the premise of what I'm going to discuss in this uh, session here. And maybe very fitting to be the, one of the last sessions, or last session at least in this room. Because in a way, that's what we're all struggling with when we go back home. Everyone back to their, when we turn back into pumpkins after... Uh, lunch, we all go back to face our challenges, even though maybe we had some of them here too, but here it's somewhat of an oasis, you know, a little escape. That's what's called a little retreat. I don't like, I never liked the word retreat. It sounded like, you know, like surrender, retreating. But uh, you know what I mean, retreating into our little womb and cocoon and go away maybe with an empowerment of really having a, uh, tools to really bridge the challenges of being a Jew in this modern world. And there are many challenges, as we will discuss. So there's many ways to capture this. Now, let me begin maybe with a good example. I don't know if any of you remember a number of years ago, there was a front-page New York Times magazine 
article written by Noah Feldman, professor at Harvard. And you can know from his last name, a Jew, obviously. And the title was Orthodox Paradox. Any of you remember this article? It's fine. So far, you haven't responded to any of my questions. Is everybody awake? <laughs> okay, good. Just check. Fine. I know I have your attention. I got it. Huh? Yeah. Um, so he wrote an article. The article was very controversial and very provocative. And he opened the article with an episode. He said he was invited. He came from Boston. So he went to the called the Maimonides School, a modern Orthodox school in Boston, Massachusetts. And he was invited to a reunion, you know, a reunion of uh, the graduating class, whatever, 20 years earlier. He was invited to this reunion. It was very nice. He came with his girlfriend. Others came with their spouses, significant others, etc. Then at the end of the reunion, he took a group photo, and, uh, which was, again, very beautiful. And lo and behold, when the, I guess, the album or whatever, the memento sent to everyone that, was, that had participated in that reunion, he looks at the picture, and to his chagrin, he's alone, and his girlfriend has been airbrushed out of the picture. She's no longer there. And he wondered to himself, this is him writing, he's wondered to himself, is it possible this has something to do with the fact that she was Korean? Obviously it did. Without asking him, they say, he says they just airbrushed her out. And that was that. And his whole article is this uh, scathing critique of the modern Orthodox Jewish world, which elicited a tremendous response because the real issue was, and he, this is what he took them to task, he said, I went to Maimonides school, I was a good student, and uh, that's what they taught us. They taught us to take the best of both worlds, to take the best of the modern and the best of the orthodox, and hence modern orthodox. So we all were taught to compartmentalize well. What means to compartmentalize well? We were taught Talmud, Bible, Jewish law, Jewish philosophy, but we were also taught the best of the sciences, and the philosophies and the arts to prepare us to go to Ivy League school. So we were taught to be the best of both worlds, modern orthodox, modern and orthodox. And every one of us chooses how we compartmentalize. Some of us wear a kippah when we eat a, meet a, eat a meal, but when we're a, a partner, a law firm, we take off the kippah, the yarmulke, the head covering. Others are completely kosher at home, but when they go to a business meeting, they're not so kosher. Everyone in their own way. And I also compartmentalized. Some married Jews. And I chose a non-Jewish girlfriend. But many other areas of my life, I keep Shabbat. I keep kosher. So why suddenly have I been uh, stigmatized here for doing exactly what they were taught, what we were taught, to compartmentalize our lives? So I understand the taboo is crossing the line into intermarriage, into the other someone from outside the tribe. So I understand it presses buttons. But philosophically, that's exactly what you taught us. And he wrote it in a, I told you, a New York Times cover magazine story gets attention. So millions of people read it. And it creates such an uproar, especially in the modern Orthodox world. They came out with, I remember, Dr. Lamb, Norman Lamb, then the chancellor of YU, just like the University of Modern Orthodoxy, I'm friendly with him. Should have a refu shlema. Um, 
And he came out with a scathing, obviously, uh, defense. But frankly, it was not adequate because Mo Feldman touched a very sensitive chord that nobody wanted to talk about, the compartmentalization of the Jewish life today. Whereas, yes, you're a Jew at home, Shabbat and Yom Kippur, but does it influence and does it spill over to your business life, to your social life, to your, uh, to your neighbors, and so on? And he really touched a nerve. I actually wrote a few articles that capture some of what I'm going to say here in case you want more information, I'll give it to you at the end. But to me, this was so intriguing, besides the pain of it, obviously, so sad in a way, but it was intriguing because, like, this was the issue. So I ask ourselves, ask yourself this question. How do you integrate your life? On one hand, you're a Jew. On the other hand, we're living in a modern world. You know, without getting into, and I'm not here to compare notes, level of faith and level of commitment, whatever it is, what do we do with this uh, challenge? So just to give you an example, you will remember maybe a few years ago, I'm not even going to ask you if you remember because I don't know if you're going to respond. In City Field, in uh, City Field in New York City, in uh, Queens actually, there was this big 100,000 Orthodox Jews got together to talk about the devil called the Internet. Remember that? Oh. Now we're getting closer to uh, modern times, I guess. I'm just an old timer, so I guess articles from 10 years ago. I'm the only one that remembers it. Yeah. Um, and it was a very, to me, I, you know, I, I study this because I study this issue of Jews and modernity and faith. And there you had 100,000, approximately 100,000 Jews. And the irony did not fall on me or anybody, it was not ignored by me by anybody else, that in, uh, in uh, coming out and protesting against modern technology, it was done in City Field, a baseball stadium, with big uh, video screens, and it was streamed on the Internet. I'm not sure how you really uh, explain that, uh, but that's what was done. So I guess maybe it was a way of like going into the uh, belly of the, of the enemy and trying to transform it. I don't know. I, I don't like to be, I don't want to be cynical, but uh, I can't avoid it. Because so I thought to myself, okay, so what were the results of this big meeting? So besides everybody getting up there and uh, talking about the vices and challenges of the Internet... Ultimately, I think the final conclusion was that um, we should put filters on our Internet. Now, I'm not going to dismiss the intentions of the people because I think it was well-intentioned well and really dealing with an issue. So let's not forget the issue. There is an issue. The Internet essentially opens up every individual from little children. Look at your children as they touch a mobile phone to the big world. Do you want them to be browsing everywhere? Porn has exploded in ways that never been unprecedented, and other all kinds of stuff. Because now you don't have to go anywhere. Your own little privacy. So I'm not going to dismiss and suddenly say it's immature and so on. I understand where they were coming from. The question is, what's the resolution? So again, you have here exactly the two options. Either we just embrace it and figure out how to manage, or we put up our blinders and say, we're going to forbid the Internet, we're going to forbid tech, the amount of technology into our homes, which we all know is unrealistic because today there's no longer even, you can't even impose ghetto walls because behind those walls broadcasts anything from, from online. So you can't even put up those blinders if you want to. And that's where I come, there's a third option. 
So the question, and I'd like to just plant this in your minds. Think about while we're speaking here. In your life, I am sure you encounter this challenge one way or another. It has to be. There's no way. Because there's no person on earth that's an island unto themselves. We all are interacting with the world around us, with people, whether it's in business, whether it's in school, whether you go to a doctor, whether you're just commuting. It's impossible. We're exposed. I recently heard a statistic that by the time you're age 20 in the Western world, the United States, an average man or woman has seen one million advertisements. Or seen or heard one million advertisements. That means, whether you like it or not, we are inundated by influences all that are stimulating our senses, people trying to sell us something, people hawking their wares, or whatever it may be. And it doesn't matter, even if you're the best person, it impacts you. You go into a supermarket, subliminal forces, whether it's the colors, whether it's the sounds, whether it's the smells, you know, they've got it all worked out. Our senses are being overstimulated all the time. And then there's the basic moral choices we have to make. Is there anyone who grew up with the highest idealist, idealistic values has not somewhere compromised their values based on so-called, quote-unquote, the realities around us? So there's hundreds of ways where this issue of so-called a Jew in the modern world clash. Now, how you deal with that clash is what we're addressing. But that there's a clash, there's no doubt about it. That's how it is. And as we shall be discussing, it's actually the way God wanted it. He didn't want it that way. He would have kept the souls in heaven. Souls in heaven are very peaceful. They've got no such challenges. There's no advertising. There's no marketing. There's no internet. And all they do, it's, I mean, it's not, it could be pretty boring, but all they do is they study Torah, and they're nice to each other. How's that sound? What do they say? People want, uh, you want heaven for the climate, but hell for the company. You know, because it could be very, it's like no drama. There's no neurosis. <laughs> it's something like what we would call on earth animal bliss. I remember when I was a kid going up to the mountains, and I was intrigued. You know, as a city boy, you don't see any animals. What do you see? I mean, you see a few cats. You see squirrels. And I'm not going to mention rodents, but uh, uh, pigeons. What else is in New York City? Let's see here. Some dogs. And you know, here and there, maybe a hawk once in a while smuggles its way in. But you go upstate, and suddenly I see a cow. Imagine a cow. It was intriguing to me. And then I see a bunch of cows browsing um, uh, in the, uh, what's the word I want to say? Pasturing in the meadows. And you look at it, wow, they're at peace. They could spend all day munching on grass, taking care of their young, breeding. And that's that, feeding it can be envious for some of us who have a lot of challenges. That's called animal bliss. But God didn't want it that way. I remember a cardiologist comes to my classes, and he has a lot of very difficult life, went through an ugly divorce, all kinds of issues. And he always telling me, can I have one day of peace? So, you know, I saw it was the right moments. So I said to him, you mean to say you'd like to have like a, uh, like a straight line? You know. As a cardiologist, you know exactly what I was saying, because a cardiogram, if it's a straight line, it's not a good sign. A, cardi a cardiogram has a wave. It has to look like this. It's just not, you don't want to have extreme peaks or extreme valleys, but you don't want a straight line. She so says, no, no, not that peaceful. The point being, as Hasidic thought makes it very clear, life is a wave. It's a series of waves. There's no such thing as a flat line. 
It's all about movement, just like we breathe in and out, our heartbeat, exhale, uh, contracts and expands, exhale, inhale, and so on. That's life. Life is mobile. And mobility means there's going to be challenges. And there are going to be clashes. And the biggest clash, the one we're discussing here, the clash between faith and modernity. You're a Jew in a modern world. And what do you do with that? There are going to be clashes on many, many levels. It's true the human being has mastered the art or is trying to master the art of animal bliss, of just like, you know, you know that joke? The guy, an old Jew, is sitting on a bench and he's all depressed. And his friend comes over and says, why are you so sad? He says, my wife is very angry at me. He says, what's new? She's always been angry at you. He says, no, today really something special. What happened? Went to work this morning. She went to work. She asked me, what are you going to do today? And I said, nothing. You know? So she said, you said that yesterday. So I told her I wasn't finished. <laughs> okay. So we have the, the, the human condition today. We're mastering the art of doing nothing. It's called being a couch potato. It actually goes against counter our entire being. Everything about us is mobile. Life, kol chaim is an expression. Everything that's alive moves. And we're trying to like stop it. But whatever the reasons. So life is a clash. What do we do about it? So I shared the two options. The two options is basically essentially, I'm not going to say it's simple, but it's basically one escapes into faith and one escapes into modernity. And then there's what we'll call the Baal Shem Tov option, the Hasidic option, that realizes something that's extremely profound but very simple as well. The most famous prayer in Judaism is what? Hashem Echad, Shema. And the last word is Echad. God is one. Now, God is one doesn't just mean one God and not many gods. That's obvious. One God means one reality and not many realities. And that has profound implications in every detail of our lives. It's not just a philosophical concept. I'll try to make it very tangible. It means that God is not there only in Yom Kippur, at the high point of the year, the holiest day of the year, in synagogue. But God is with us right here Sunday afternoon in Palm Springs in a mundane, regular day. And it's not two gods. So then, of course, you could ask the question, so what makes Yom Kippur so holy? God is with us all the time, every day. The answer is the level of manifestation. You go to the Kotel, or you go on Yom Kippur, God doesn't change, but our lives, there are less buffers, you can say, less filters, less, less um, um, husks that allow us to access it. That's what makes it easier in a synagogue or in a holy day. But from the God perspective, it's everywhere and all the time. It just manifests in different ways. Think of it like an artist. Artist makes a beautiful painting. You see, wow, beautiful painting. And you say, can he make another painting? Absolutely. And you can make an infinite amount of paintings if you had an infinite amount of time. And they're all the expression of one artist, but in so many different colors and hues and dimensions. That's called a mosaic. Think of us human beings here. There's no two people in this room or on earth that are exactly alike. We don't think the same way. We don't look the same way. And yet, we are all part of one mosaic. Like think of musicians in a symphony. They all play different instruments and different sounds and different moments. Everyone is necessary and everyone needs everyone else to complement them. That's what we call harmony within diversity.
And if you think about it, all of life is driven by this. On one hand, seems like a paradox, but on the other hand, it's the beauty of life. The word beauty itself. One color blue can be very nice. Color red, you may have a favorite color. One musical note is very nice, but you keep playing it, it becomes monotonous. What constitutes beauty? A beautiful face, a beautiful experience. It's always going to be many things, many colors, situated and in a harmony. And a coordinated way, that's beauty. But remember, with all beauty comes also the risk of chaos. Because if you mix the colors the wrong way, or you mix the musical notes the wrong way, then you have noise, you have chaos, you have confusion, you have divisiveness, and you could even have war. So the fact that our lives have clashes shouldn't disturb any of us. The whole Tanya is basically based on that. The Alter Rebbe says, don't be so disturbed. We all have clashes. We have two souls. We have two voices. One voice says, take care of your own needs. The other voice says, take care, help somebody else. We all have that choice every second of our lives. The clash is not the, shouldn't surprise us. That's what God wants. Here's not the place to discuss why. But that's what he wants, and that definitely makes life exciting. Dynamic, dramatic. So we, have, so we don't look at the problem. The problem is not the class. The problem is what you do with the clash. But when you realize that both sides of the class, so to speak, are coming from one Hashem Echad, that changes everything. Then it's a matter of just finding the godliness in everything. And that was the mistake, the fundamental philosophical mistake, both of the extreme left who felt they have to compromise Judaism in order to gain the benefits of the Western world, or those who felt they have to cut out the Western world and banish it and just embrace Judaism and try to see the rest of the world as, as, as see the rest of the world as, as a evil and as an enemy. They're both philosophically flawed by the one simple fact, God created it all. Technology is not a man-made creation. We created the instruments to access technology. But when Adam and Eve were created in the world, the Rebbe has a fascinating little note. He wrote it on a talk that I prepared many years ago about technology. He wrote, technology was embedded in existence from the beginning of time. Just like electricity was there. Just like so many other, uh, so many other discoveries that came in time and will come. It's already there in nature. No scientist on the earth, the most arrogant, will not say, I created, I created the subatomic particles or I created the electricity. We created instruments to tap in and to um, access so this is God's creation. God creates something that's evil. So you'll say, one second, but then we see an internet, and many Orthodox Jews will say, one second, internet, fine. You can use it to spread Torah, but then you just go one click away, and you can see the things that are completely antithetical to Torah. So there's actually that itself. The Rebbe also qualified by explaining very simple. There were the philosophers of Rome that asked Rabbi Akiva this question, just in different terms. He said, if God didn't want to have idolatry, he should have destroyed the sun and the moon and the trees and the stones, and that way there'd be nothing to worship. So there'd be no sun worshippers, no moon worshippers. And Rabbi Kiva, of course, brilliantly answered. He said, because of the fools, God's going to destroy the world. He's going to destroy his world because there are fools who don't know how to use it for the right thing. Someone's going to take food, healthy food, and just indulge themselves until they, they choke on their food. So God's not going to create food because some people are fools. Now the commentary there, the Teshu Yishantav asks a follow-up question. Why didn't the philosophers ask the next question? Why didn't God destroy the fools? 
And his answer is, of course, free will. As some of the thinkers say, we must believe in free will. We have no choice. You know? <laughs> so free will. What's free will? That God wanted us to be partners with him. And a partner means there's always a risk. And God took the great risk. Yes, a gamble. I created a human being with the ability to choose. It's a sacred ability that's compared that only God has that ability. Animals don't have it. Angels don't have it. Nothing on earth. God said, I will give the human being the ability to choose. I mean, if you think about that, that itself deserves an awesome uh, focus in our lives. That we were given a gift to choose. And God is not going to destroy his universe because some people make the bad choice. He expects that we will choose correctly. So therefore, yes, there are forces in this world that can be used for the most destructive purposes. Fire. Fire can consume and destroy, but without fire, without warmth, what would we be? If the sun were just a few miles closer to earth, it would burn up the earth. If a few miles further, we would freeze. You need to have balance in life. You never say, oh, it's all bad. And indeed, that's what Hasidic thought teaches. That there is no clash between faith, faith and modernity, really. Because the positive, element, the positive elements of modern life, and I'm not talking about man-made things. We're talking about things in this world are all divine. The question is, how concealed is it? Can you access and reveal it? And therefore, the essence is really that faith and modernity are just two sides of one coin. And it's all what Hasidic thought calls divine unity, the seeking of unity. And interestingly, what is science looking for? Also unity. It's not an accident. So is this a greater challenge? Absolutely, because it means we engage with the world. We're not afraid of it, like the extreme that puts on blinders. On the other hand, we look to influence the world and not the world influencing us. That's the key difference. So let's talk about how this can manifest in very practical ways. And I deal with this on a very on an ongoing basis, literally daily. I find the greatest challenge, really, not necessarily an audience like this, because here, everybody's here, essentially there's a sense of family, a sense of, not that we necessarily agree about everything, but it's a, a, not a hostile audience, at least till now. Um, wait, you want to show the, save the best for last? Um, this is your chance. This is your chance because, you know, there's going to be another session. Yeah. Oh, hungry. Okay. Don't worry, lunch is coming in case you get hungry. Um, so one of the biggest challenges, really, is not so much communicating a message of how we find uh, faith or godliness in all our, our lives. The real problem is something that may surprise you, maybe won't surprise you is the stereotypes. Most people in the United States, I will say, see religion as a negative, to be very honest. They associate with religion negative stuff. Even if someone wasn't hurt by religion or by religious authorities, associate with religion with dogma, rules. You know, if it was a knee-jerk reaction if someone said, just tell me, religion, what are the words that come to mind? And I've tested this, people will say fear. Anger, punishment, accountability. Almost nothing positive. I mean, at least that we feel is positive. Dogma, condescension. Religious people, they think they're holier than thou. They judge the rest of us. Someone had negative experiences with religious 
with religion or religious authorities or religious people, then forget about it. Then they'll tell you they're a bunch of crooks. I deal with this all the time. They say, yeah, 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 you look all this and that. I met someone like you and I did business with him. I know what you guys are like under the surface. You ever hear that? Okay. And it's very hard to argue with an emotional stereotype. You, what are you going to say? No, I'm not like one of them. And they say, what do you think? Of course that's what you're going to say, you know? So we're dealing with not a neutral situation. So for me, one of the challenges, how do you uh, neutralize it? How do you uh, counter that? I'll remember a story, that real story that happened when, I, when the book Tour to Meaningful Life was published. And I went on a book tour. It was in Cleveland. It was a morning show. The book tour consisted of like media interviews. And one of them was a morning television interview, like a five-minute, six-minute interview. And I walk in to the studio like 10 minutes before my interview. And the person who's going to, the host, hostess sees me and literally almost fainted. I'm not kidding. And I was thinking to my, what did I do? And she looks at me and she says, you, you're the author? She thought I was the driver or something. I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, I said, I guess so. I mean, I'm here. You know, I wasn't ashamed. But she says, I can't believe it. it looks like you. I never thought the author of this book, this great book, that's how she put it, would look like you. <laughs> <laughs> how would you take that? So I said, well, is there something about my looks that disturb you? <laughs> I knew what she meant, but she said to me, I said, what do you think I would look like? She said, based on this book, and it's one of the best books I've ever read, I thought you'd be a slim, sexy-looking dude. <laughs> so I said, I thought I was that. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, one of these, uh, in, the, in, in your home, you have a mirror, you know those car carnival, the mirrors that make you look either... <laughs> How else do we maintain our healthy egos? Uh, you, look, you see what you want to see. Anyway, she said that. That was what she said. Then she said, so I said to her, why don't you talk about that on the show? That'll be intriguing. Tell her about your reaction. And we did, obviously, not quite those words. And she said to me, on, what was her first question? She said, it's a wonderful book, very relevant. It's universal. Everyone can benefit from it. Wouldn't it be more beneficial for the publicity of the book if you looked more like us? That's what she said. Which would make, no, she meant it actually sincerely. She wasn't really like being, I didn't take it negatively. I took it like, you know, you look different. And many people will say, I don't necessarily want to read a book from a guy that looks like that. So, of course, I said to her, hey, this is maybe an opportunity to cut through stereotypes and maybe just talk to each other, soul to soul, and stop looking at looks. I said, would you say the same thing to a Saudi Arabian prince? Why don't you take over that thing? What do they call it? Whatever. Or to an Amish or to someone else who's wearing their religious garb or whatever it is? No, obviously she wouldn't because we respect culture, except Jews, I guess. Now, I, I thought she was Jewish because I thought only a Jew would be disturbed by this, but she wasn't Jewish, actually. But that doesn't really... The point I'm making here is that the theme, this idea to, to teach and the profound teaching, which is so um, actually very engaging and very attractive that you can find godliness in everything. And there's no battle, really, if you see the divine in everything in your life. The challenge is the stereotype. Because here's the fact, the sad statistic. 90 or 95% of Americans will say that they're some way, in some way spiritual. They believe in God. And around 40% will say that they associate with a religion. That's not a small discrepancy. And the reason is very obvious. Religion is not associated with spirituality. Religion is associated with what I said before. Rules, dogma, 
community, even people who talk beautifully about religion will say it's about a structure. You have structure in your life. Shabbos comes kosher. There's no ifs and buts. There's a certain absolute structure in a world with so much fluctuation. It's great to have a grounding, a solid foundation, which is true. But free-spiritedness, they'll say musicians are free-spirited. Artists are free-spirited. No one's going to associate free-spiritedness with religion today. But if you think about it, let me ask you something. Was Abraham a free spirit or a conformist? Absolute free spirit. He was a nonconformist. He was a pioneer. He went against the grain of the entire culture and brought us virtue, charity. His, his world where he lived is a world of paganism. Me, me, me. A world of takers. And he instituted a concept called giving. Lasses, Dukkah, Mishpat, charity, justice, virtue. And his, and his philosophy ultimately took hold. Today, it's a predominant way of thinking. It wasn't always that way. Moses was ultimate nonconformist. Now, this is another discussion how nonconformist founders turned, became a religion that's so conformist-based. But it tells you that maybe the religion we know is not really the real religion. How do you like that? As the, as the Levi Yitzhak Baditchever said, the God you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. He told this to a self-proclaimed atheist. And that's what I want to share in this part of this discussion because the key thing, the key point I made about bridging faith and modernity, that's the philosophical. But the practical is that we have, a, oh, most of us have a very, very distorted or somewhat distorted version of what religion really is. It's been presented to us, as I said, as this structured thing. In, in, indeed, it really is. It really is the most free-spirited thing. And spirituality and religion are synonymous. And to just demonstrate how I, one experiment I did to demonstrate this. So the word God, right? This word God may not evoke in any of you any very strong reaction, or maybe it would, but it evokes reactions in many circles. When I started giving my classes years ago, so it was a small group, the core group were people from the arts and entertainment industry. And these were all free-spirited people, mostly Jewish. But if you ask them where did they get their spirituality from, it would not be from anything we would call traditional Judaism. What they would say would be Zen Buddhism or a thing called LSD. You know what that is? It's not an acronym for Let's Start Davening. That I can tell you. Now, I, rem I remember... And they were bringing their friends. I remember that even before I opened my mouth, I felt I was at a disadvantage because they look at me again. I don't project a, neut a neutral image. Here I am with a beard, a yarmulke. And I may remind some people of good memories, but also maybe negative ones. Maybe an angry grandfather that slept them to shul on Yom Kippur against their will. Or sitting at an irrelevant Seder table. Or studying hollow uh, bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah lessons with a teacher. And their Judaism ended there. You know, who knows? So I decided to try an experiment, exactly to attack this stereotype thing. And I decided I'm not going to use any word that associates with religion or Judaism. No God, I won't use the word Torah, I won't use the word mitzvah, I won't use the word Mashiach, I won't use any of those terms. And I created this whole little language, and uh, instead of God, I used words like the essence the higher essence, the higher reality. 
And it was a particularly new age group, like undefined layers of unconscious energy. And they were like, so wow, that sounds great, you know. And instead of Torah, I used the word blueprint. Instead of mitzvahs, connections. Instead of Mashiach or, or redemption, Gula, I used destination. So here I was uh, waxing eloquent and pontificating about reaching the essence of all of reality and the essence of yourself through following this uh, blueprint and making connections to create total fusion between form and function, between the inner and the outer, between the undefined and the defined, between determinism and indeterminism. You know, you get the idea. And I, I elaborated more than that to come to a point of seamless connection of heaven and earth, soul and body. After a few weeks, and, and I could tell you, this was going really well. They were like so intrigued every week. They'd say, okay, we're going to hear another dimension of this fusion. Fusion was a good word. And uh, after a few weeks, a fellow came over to me. I could tell you who it was. There was a band, I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember. In the 60s, there was a band called Jay and the Americans. There was a rock band. They had a few hits, number one hits. Jay was J.E. Black. He was actually, he, he, he had a... Um, he had lessons, music song lessons from uh, the, the Chazan cantor Kazovitsky. That's what you hear in the song. You can tell this cantorial sounds. And one of the members of the band was a name called, his name was Kenny Vance. Comes over to me quietly before the class and says, you know, you've been talking about this very intriguing thing. I just want to know something. Are you talking about God? <laughs> so he asked me. So I said, yes, but shh, don't, don't spoil it for the rest. You know, don't spoil it for the others. And actually worked really well. What I learned from that is, and so lesson to all of us, that when you use the word faith, modernity, or other terms, words are loaded. You know, we live in a world where, a world of therapy, where you're told, break the silence. You got to communicate. She doesn't know what you're thinking. He doesn't know what you're thinking. You can't just keep it inside yourself and expect people are going to understand what you're feeling. You know, as a matter of fact, some say we talk too much. We talk and talk and talk, talk. You know, the joke, the guy comes to the Jew, comes to the priest to confess his sins. And the priest, before he even begins, says, I'm very impressed that you're coming to, how'd you come to the truth? The Jew coming to a priest. So the Jew says, don't take it personally. I'm telling everybody, you know. <laughs> so it's age of talk. So we think words are always going to communicate. But words also have a, a double-edged sword. They can also be words that are, that are loaded. You can use a word that to you is completely innocuous, meaningless, but the, your partner or whoever is you're saying it to, every time they hear that word, it reminds them what their mother said every time she got angry. And I listen very often in counseling couples, I say, just change your language. You could say exactly the same thing. Don't, you don't use words you've used for the last 30 years. And it works because the word itself gets in the way. You keep saying the same word and you think, the other person's going to hear something different. They don't hear something different. And especially when it comes to this topic, the clashes and the difficulties in our lives, it's sometimes we need to redefine our terms. And we need to rethink what God really is. If you think God is this man sitting on a, on a throne with a long white beard, ready to strike us with lightning when we misbehave, and that's your nursery school image that was etched in your brain from early age, and many people, by the way, do think that, because they never developed a more sophisticated uh, definition. 
then what do you think? Of course, you're going to associate everything that's religious with this angry God sitting there waiting to punish us. And there are people that absolutely feel that way. A lot of people coming from Holocaust survivor parents will say it was all about anger and all about fear and all about guilt. However, if you redefine God as being the essence of reality, for example, or your own essence, and that something that is the deepest reality of all of existence and beyond, it's a very different meaning. And that many people, many Jews will say that definition is actually they'll think it comes from New Age. I say, no, not really. You open up a book of Kabbalistic thought, whether the Zohar or later works, and especially explain the Hasidic thought, and you see it's a lot more sophisticated. But you need to know that. And the same thing with the mitzvah. Let's take the word mitzvah, mitzvah, commandment. Nobody likes to be commanded, let's be honest. Anybody here says, hey, I can't wait to get another command? It makes you sound like you're a little like a slave. Now, some will say the commandments I accept because I need to have structure, and that's what God wants of us, and I understand the beauty of it. But it's not like we like the word command, especially in our free society. But you know, the word mitzvah comes not from the word command. It comes from the word connection. That wasn't a made-up word that I made. It comes from Hebrew. What means connection? People say, connection? Everybody wants to be connected, whether it's networking or whether it's uh, mobile smartphones, because connection is intriguing. I want to, what am I connecting to it? And that's exactly what a mitzvah does. It connects you with the divine. It connects you with a deeper transcendent dimension. Who doesn't want that? Now, most people today will say, I get that through music or art. Most will not say they get it from religion or faith. They say, I may accept religion and faith because I can deal with it. But if I really want transcendence, I'm going to go to a rock concert. Or I'm going to take some LSD. Or maybe something else. Because that makes me high. That's because we don't know that Judaism offers that without any foreign substances. So it's really about redefining terms and also recognizing that a lot of the things we think Judaism is is either completely wrong and a lot of things Judaism offers we may not even know that it offers. Now obviously in the scope of a, of a talk like this it's impossible to go through it all. But to me this is the two key points I want to leave you with and that is there really is no contradiction. You know Golda Meir between our modern lives and our faith. Golda Meir, when she became Prime Minister of Israel, so Henry Kissinger was then Secretary of State, and he said to her, he wrote her a note, I welcome you to the diplomatic community, but I want to remind you that I'm three things and in this order. He was Jewish, and he didn't want her to think she's going to get any preferential treatment. So three things in this order. Number one, I'm this, a citizen of the United States. Number two, I'm Secretary of State. And number three, I'm a Jew, in that order. She was a sharp woman, so she sent him back a quick telegram saying, after reading your note, I'm sure we'll have an excellent working relationship because you see, in Hebrew, in Israel, we read from right to left. Okay, So there's reading from right to left and left to right. Hebrew, Yiddish is right to left. Yiddish is my first language. But it's not just about direction of writing. It's also mindset. We live in two worlds. Because if you look at Judaism and Torah, it's all about absolute morality. The secular world, moral relativism. So it's not that simple. How do you, you can't reconcile those two. They, they are opposites. But you can reconcile the way you live your life by finding the best of both and recognizing there's a divine element in everything that we do. So that's the first point. And the second is it's going to be vital in your journey to rephrase and sometimes revisit words that you think you, you know what they mean, and maybe you don't completely. 
or the other way around. Things that Judaism offers that you're not aware of. Now you'll say, one second, what am I supposed to do? I'm dependent on my teachers. I'm dependent on my mentors, on my rabbis. So even if I want to go and I don't really read Hebrew, or I can't find the original, how am I supposed to find this uh, path? So I'm telling you right now, feel empowered because God gave you a soul. You don't need your rabbi or teacher or mentor or me or anybody for your soul. What teachers and mentors are meant to do is meant to help you find and discover your soul. So if something doesn't resonate and you have a conflict in your life between so-called your Judaism and your modern life, find the right person who understands it and can help you recognize ways of balancing the two. Is it easy? No. That doesn't mean we'll always find it remedy, but no, you could find it because the ultimate goal is Hashem Echad. We say it so many times. There's no way that you can't find unity if you really want to. Again, that doesn't mean there won't be clashes. Let me just go back to that city field because you'll say, okay, so tell me what you would do. What, is, what would the Hasidic third approach be that doesn't so-called compromise Judaism in face of the modern world and the other hand doesn't compromise the modern world in face of Judaism? What would you suggest? Here's the internet. What are we supposed to do? So actually, a few weeks after that city field event, I had the privilege to speak to a few rabbis that were there. They respect me, and we have a conversation, you know, over the record. And, uh, and I asked them, what do you think? They said, eh, at least we made a protest. I don't know how much will come out of it, but at least we protested the evils of the internet. And I'm not getting into whether benefit, was that's a benefit or not a benefit. So I told them, I'll tell you what I was trained to do. And this comes straight out of the book of what I grew up with from the Hasidic world, the third, the path. I said, why did anyone not suggest, instead of just voicing and the, the evils and the temptations and the vices of technology, maybe say the following. Technology was created by God. As I said, the forces of technology. Everything God created was in order to to express the glory, the divine majesty in this world. Why don't we start educating our children to that and realizing that when do they are faced with an internet? Obviously, a young age, as much as you can control, you control. But as we become exposed to this modern world and recognize, instead of just saying, oh, let's avoid the temptations, maybe go on the offense. Maybe the best defense is offense. Not maybe, absolutely. And what does offense mean? Meaning that for every email you send out that's business-related or personal or entertainment or nonsense, Make a commitment, not imposed, impose it on yourself, that you'll send out five emails that share a word of Torah or inspiration or kind word with somebody. I believe that people would consider that. This doesn't mean that you're going to have it all solved, but at least you start thinking that these instruments of the modern world are not enemies. They are tools that you can use for the positive. And you know something? When you fill your life with light automatically, you have less darkness. That's how it is. I used a typewriter once upon a time. You know what that looks like? Then we integrated, we, we, we grew with, the, with technology. So technology to me is not a novelty. I see it as a very powerful instrument that speeds up the process of production and speeds up the ability and it creates a distribution that's unprecedented and really an ability to fulfill what Isaiah said thousands of years ago in this prophecy, a world filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. Today, you don't need a miracle for that. So if each of us thought ourselves as agents of creating some positive influence in the world, 
technology is the, is the gift given to us. So this means on the offense. Is this going to solve all the problems? Obviously not, because there's still temptations and still challenges. But at least you start thinking positively instead of start thinking negatively that everywhere I go, I'm surrounded by enemies. Everything is attacking my soul. It's basically stating that if you become an influencer, you're going to be less influenced. It's as simple as that. And if you just put up defensive walls, it's very hard to protect yourself in this world because there really are no walls. My father was a journalist. He used to always say, he used to tell me, there are three types of people. People who make things happen, people who watch things happen, and people who ask what happened. Now today there's a fourth category, people who tell you what happened that never happened. You know, we won't go into that. Okay. But which one would you like to be? We, the Jewish people, were blessed to be people who make things happen. Not watch and not ask what happened. And when you, in that mode, guaranteed on a, on a psychological, emotional, practical level, your whole life is a different life because you are initiating. You're not a victim waiting for things to happen. You're not reacting. You're not on the defense. You're on the offense. This, I can tell you, is the driving engine. You know, we're here at JLI. What gave birth to JLI? The Lubavitcher Rebbe and his inspiration to Rabbi Mintz and his wife and their whole entire staff and everybody by extension that evolved from that. Whether you know it or not, that's where it came from. Why? Because the Rebbe taught we live in a world, you have to use this world, you have to lose beautiful resorts like this because this is what it was created for, to come and change it through bringing Torah into the, into the space. And we leave here and this space will forever be changed. Why? Because it became, a, I guess, an uh, incubator, if you call it that, of a few days of 1,100 Jews of different walks of life and all, and, and all the beautiful diversity of everyone here going back to their particular communities and some way bringing more light and elevating and improving the state of uh, morality, ethics, uh, Judaism, spirituality in your particular corner of the world. That's a forever experience. We could all sat for a few days wherever we'd be on vacation and not initiate something of this nature. Just an example. So the world is essentially our platform. And it's given to us to use for positive things. But we need to make that choice. That's a choice. But for it to be an informed choice, we need to study. Which is why you can't just, you can be inspired, you can be inspired, but inspiration it dissipates. That's why study is so important. That's why we have, these, uh, we have these, all these sessions. Study. And obviously study itself is a lifetime journey. So I hope some of the words I've shared here, this session and other sessions, were the words of the colleagues of mine, distinguished colleagues, each in their own themes, each in their own style, have touched you as they have touched me and they have touched, I'm sure, my colleagues. And the way that we can all go back feeling different, I would say feeling empowered, and remembering the world is not our enemy. There are enemies in the world. I didn't say there aren't. There are forces that can be very formidable and very challenging. But the mindset we have to have is that there's a divine presence in everything. And our job is to reveal it. Now this doesn't mean we have to go to the darkest places. If we don't have to, we don't go. But should you find yourself in a situation or should you be, be presented with something that seems to be something of the modern world that challenges our Judaism, instead of being fearful, say, you know what? 
Let me figure out or let me talk to someone that I can trust or respect, put our heads together and figure out how we can take this situation and turn it into a vehicle for divine revelation. That's the world of Mashiach. Mashiach, the Rambam writes, Maimonides writes, I'm closing. Maimonides writes, the axeman cometh. <laughs> no, no, no. God forbid. I love this guy. He's great. Without this structure. No, really, without this structure, we wouldn't. Especially a guy like me, I can just go on and on and on and on. So I'm very glad. But I wanted to conclude. I say, Mashiach, my, my Maimonides writes, is not supernatural events necessarily. The world doesn't suddenly have to have some type of phenomenon that everything changes. It's actually a change in consciousness by people like you and I. It's saying that instead of materialism being an end in itself, it will be a stepping stone to spiritual growth. If I have your permission, I want to just show one short example of that. I spoke at a medical conference. Now, I'm not a doctor. They asked me to speak about medicine of the future. So based on what I know from Jewish thought, there will be no medicine in the future. There will be no death. There will be no illness. So I said that. I said because once a healthy world where body and soul are completely integrated... It'll be a healthy world. So one doctor gets up. I'm just making it brief. And he says, so what will we do? You know? So after the prerequisite joke that that's why you charge so much maybe for a long retirement, you know, not knowing that money also won't be much value then, I said the following, because I took this something from the Rebbe once said about a different scenario. I said, you will be doing the most noble type of work. We have an expression, from my flesh I behold God. The human being was created in the divine image. You doctors and scientists and medical experts understand the anatomy and the biology and the chemistry of the human being in ways that we don't. You will teach us the secrets of the divine that are embedded in the human being. What better work than that? Instead of having to fight illness and disease and death and the pain of it all, You'll be teaching us that. And astronomers will be teaching it us from the cosmos. And physicists will be teaching it us through physics. So the real change is only one. Instead of this material world as an end in itself, meaning that everything will be a stepping stone, will be like a metaphor. We're going to go to lunch now. Instead of just eating, we'll also see in the food the divine sparks and see, ah, a divine revelation. And that doesn't mean we won't enjoy the food, but it means that you'll see it as a means to a higher end. Just had to throw that. So God should bless us all and bless you all in your journey. I want to just say, if you go to MeaningfulLife.com, this talk I gave, at least in some, is in some of the articles. And please see me as an asset, a resource, a friend, an ally. I want to thank JLI. I want to thank Rabbi Epstein and the whole staff. And it's been wonderful. Everyone enjoy. And next year we shall be in Jerusalem at a JLI conference in the Old City. Please visit MyJLI.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and TorahCafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.